Today, uh, our word comes from Revelation chapter 5. Um, and for now, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 5. So uh, hear now the word of God. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Um, Good morning, everyone. And, you know, uh, I think this has been a really exciting season for our church. Uh, We just finished the sermon series on Daniel. And uh, Pastor Dave thought, hey, it's going to be great to just jump right into Revelations. And what a gutsy move uh, that was. Um, And... And you know, it, and it, and I think it connects really well. And when and when people usually hear revelation, uh, what are your first what are your first thoughts? It's usually doom and gloom. But as P. Dave said it uh, last week, it's it was a book written by John to encourage the believers during very difficult times. And uh, I really am so excited to dive into. Revelation 5 with you all today. And um, I would like to make a special request, whether you're here or at home. If you have a physical Bible, uh, could you get it? Because I think it's going to be really great to kind of follow along, uh, especially during this sermon. So uh, if you're here, and if you only have your phone, that's okay. You can take out your phone. But uh, I'm just going to give you guys a, a, a moment to go and get your Bible if you're at home. But um, let's get it, and let's, let's, let's do this together. I'll just give you guys a a moment. Uh, we have people here with their Bibles. It's great. Okay. So hope you were all able to uh, get your Bible. And, um, you know, today as we look at, um, you know, the scroll and the seals, uh, we're going to cover today uh, these three things. We're going to take a look at the future visions and the prophecy within the scroll and the seals. Then we're going to go from the future, and then we're going to go to the past. We're going to look at the footprints to, I think, what led to all of this. And we're going to land on the present response. So we're going to go to the future, the past, and then we're going to land on the present. So, uh, church, will will you pray with me? Father God, we we thank you so much for your word. And... uh, this book, uh, this Revelation book, is, um, it's, it's so difficult in a way, but so beautiful. And we thank you that you gave it to us. And as we dive into your word today, give us understanding. Give us faith. And may our hearts be transformed continually of drawing closer to you 
through the truth and the power that you've given us through your word. Father, be with each and every single one of us. Be with me, Lord. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to kind of go into the future through John's experience. Uh, and he has these visions. But I always think a little bit of context always helps us. So a little bit of context. Uh, the John we're talking about here is one of the 12 original disciples of Jesus. And, um, you know, and what's unique about John is most of the other apostles, soon after Jesus' resurrection, they all scattered to go to the ministry and the sharing of the gospel. And many of them were martyred. They were, they were, they were killed soon after. They didn't get to really live long lives. But John, on the other hand, uh, got to live a, a really long life. He lived just under 100. And... Um, during his long life, he would record the Gospel of John, uh, hit the three letters, you know, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and this book, you know, Revelation. And in Revelation 1.9, you know, John says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on an island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John, here he is in the island of Patmos because he's banished there. It was a small little Greek island, and what the Romans did was anyone uh, that were criminals or that they wanted exiled, they would send them to this island. And John got sent there because he was teaching the gospel, you know, mostly in the area of Ephesus. And, uh, and you know, at this place of banishment and kind of like, it's like a, it's like a unique imprisonment on this island, uh, God does something really special here. He does something really unique. Think about it. Anything, any information, any vision that is of the heavens, that is not of this world, that is about God, those are the things that Scripture calls the secret things of God. And, you know, uh, and here in the island of Patmos, John at a very old age, God reveals to John one of the most tremendous secrets. And God says, write this all down. And this is how we get the book of Revelation. And John is shown these things through an angel as he sees these visions. And it's most likely that John, he didn't receive just one vision. He received many visions. And uh, it probably happened throughout a span of, you know, it wasn't just like a one moment one dream thing. And uh, his first vision in Revelations 1 is his vision and he sees Jesus himself. And in, in chapter 1, verse 13, um, and, and by the way, when we we're reading through Revelation, uh, John uses a lot of, uh, my wife taught me the word, similes. I haven't heard that word since like middle school or high school. But uh, in Revelations, there's a lot of uh, descriptions where it says, uh, this was like this or as if it was this. And, and you, can, you can see John's valiant effort to do his very best to describe to us what is shown to him. Okay? And just, just have that in mind. And, 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 and in his first visions, you know, what does it say? It says, and amongst the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Can you guys picture what Jesus looks like? I can't. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't know what that person will look like. Uh, but the Jesus that John saw in his first vision in Revelation 1, it almost kills him as he sees Jesus. Like, just take that in for a moment. Have you ever met or seen anything that almost killed you? Not because something terrible was happening, like you're distracted and then you're walking into, like, you know, you're crossing the street. Not like that, but like you were just staring at something and it just floors you. And for some of the romantics out there, maybe some of the husbands are like, yes, when I met my wife. But I don't think my wife is this beautiful that I almost died when I saw her, and she will surely tell you, she surely, I don't think she even, <laughs> I don't think she even budged when she saw me. But just think about the impact of this. It's unimaginable, right? Revelation 1.17 says this, when I saw him, when John says, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. Incredible. And then we get John's second vision, and now we're drawing close to our text today. John gets invited to get a closer look into heaven, right? Revelations 4.1, you know, it describes the throne of heaven. And, and what is there? John sees the throne, but he can't really see God. So he just kind of describes him as these Three different jewels, like, oh, you know, there was a throne and it was like jasper and carnelian and emerald with rainbows all over. <laughs> that was his description of God. And, um, and then around God's throne, there were 24 thrones with 24 elders seated around. And they're all clothed in white and they had golden crowns. And I would guess that these elders were human beings. Because angels are not given thrones. They're not given crowns. They, they're not there to rule, uh, but they're there to be servants of God. Uh, who are these 24 elders? I don't know. But they're there. And not only are they there, there's flashings of lightning and, and rumble, of, and there's these seven torches. And they say that there's like a sea of glass like crystal. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what that would exactly look like, but we see John really trying to describe what he sees. But there's more. There's four creatures. And the way that he describes them is they have full of eyes and they all have six wings. They have eyes everywhere and they, have, they all have six wings. And the first beast looks like a lion, the second like an ox, the third has a face of a man, the fourth, like an eagle in flight. And guess what? They can speak. It's crazy. Just imagine what this setting looks like. I can't. 
I think I can get a vague picture, but it's, it's, it's unlike anything I've ever seen, not even close. And then we arrive to chapter 5. So here's John in his second vision. He is shown the throne. In chapter 5, what does it say? Then I saw in the right hand of him, of God, who was seated on the throne, and a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. In John's third vision, or maybe a continuation of the second vision, he sees this glorious scroll in God's right hand. And he notices there's writing on both sides of the scroll. He notices that it's wonderfully bound and it's tied, and there's something significant about it. But no one can be found that can take this scroll and open it. And John has an interesting response. He starts to weep. And he weeps until one of the elders that are seated at one of the 24 thrones says, hey, don't worry. There is actually one person who is worthy. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And then verse 6 reads what? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the, on, on the throne. So the elder tells John, don't worry, there is a lion of Judah. And John looks and he expects to see a lion and he sees the lamb. And this isn't a normal lamb. It, the way that the lamb is described is really interesting. This lamb has seven horns, seven eyes, and there's a lot of interpretations of it. It's like the fullness of the wisdom of Jesus and, 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 and the entirety of his work. But definitely not your typical lamb. And, and this lamb takes the seal from the right hand of God. And this lamb opens the scroll and starts opening the seal. And as each seal is open, apocalyptic events are going to take place. I want to remind you that all of this has not happened yet. This was a vision of the future. And in the future, Jesus opens the first seal. And what happens? One of the creatures says, come. And he summons this rider on a white horse holding a bow. And he has a crown. And when the first seal is opened, this represents that there's going to be this great antichrist with great authority. And he's going to come pretending to offer peace. But what he's really after is to conquer. And then Jesus opens the second seal. And the creature once again says, come, and summons the second rider. And this rider is on a red horse with a great sword. And when the second seal is open, a great war breaks out all over the earth. Then the third seal is opened by the lamb. And the creature says, come. And there's a rider on a black horse with a pair of scales in his each hands. And this represents great famine. 
and and that uh, it's gonna cost. It's gonna take so much more work for just a little bit of food. You see, like a quarter of barley and and this recipe for bread, which shouldn't cost much. Just the recipe of it is costing a whole day's wager for bread. And there's gonna be famine all across the earth after the third seal. And then Jesus opens the fourth seal. And the creature says, come, and the rider comes on a pale horse. And this rider is identified. This one is identified. And his name is Death. And right behind him, Hades follows. And by the fourth seal, one-fourth of the earth's population is killed, whether it was by the sword, famine, plague, or by wild beasts. When Jesus opens the fifth seal, you hear all the cries of all those who were martyred during this time. But God gives them a white robe and says, hold on. They want vengeance. God, you have to have vengeance. And God says, hold on. Let's wait until the completion of everyone is accounted for. Then the sixth seal breaks open by Jesus, and there's a great earthquake that takes place. The sun becomes black, the stars fall, and uh, the stars falling from the sky, and every island and mountain is plucked. It's disappeared. And all those who are survivors of this by the sixth seal, they're, they're huddled in caves. And, and they don't know what to do. And the seventh seal, this one is open in chapter 8. There's a little break in between, but the seventh seal, there, John says this, there's a half an hour of moment of silence in the heavens. Because now the seventh seal is open, now the whole scroll is revealed. And in the seventh seal, the last section of that scroll, they see what the judgment of God is now. And that judgment is so terrifying. So you thought seals one through six was bad. Seal number seven was so terrifying that there's a moment of silence in all of the heavens. Church, this is real. This scroll with the seals exists, though it hasn't been opened yet. It's all real. And I don't know about all of you guys, but it's terrifying. It's terrifying, but I wonder how it really hits home. I wonder if this is terrifying in the way that when we listen to like a news report, like some tragic event took place, and in that moment, it's like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. And then an hour or two later, oh, I'm hungry. What are we going to eat? And we just kind of like get over it. Or does something like this sit with you deeper? And I wonder how it sits with us because maybe some of us are thinking, well, whatever this scroll and judgment with the seals, I'm pro- it's, not, it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime, so whew. Or, or maybe you're thinking, well, I didn't really know about it, so I didn't really have anything to be really be afraid for. Well, for some, maybe it's just so unfathomable, it seems almost unrealistic. So it's like, I can't even imagine it. So, I mean, I hope it doesn't happen, well, at least while I'm here. But if it does, I mean, what could I do? I'll, I'll do what I can. But whatever your stance is, church, 
Fear alone doesn't completely transform us. That's kind of what I've seen. It may alter the way that we do things a certain way, but it doesn't fully transform us. Let's take Adam and Eve for an example. We're going to go to the past, right? They fear God, but they still ate from the tree. And even though they got kicked out of Eden and they were trembling in the bush when God called out their name, do you think they really changed the way that they lived and they lived more holy lives and they tried to repent? I don't know. But based on their sons, Cain and Abel, there was a murder soon after. And Abel's voice cries out from the soil for, like, oh, my own brother took my life. For what? Because I gave offering to God? Does fear of God really change how you live? If so, how much? And I want us to remember this question. Is fear enough? When I, when I look at the Bible, you know, starting with Genesis, I feel like there's this common movement throughout the Bible. And God seems to be a God of process and God who multiplies. And uh, we can see this in the creation narrative, the way that God created. It's, it, it, the way he carefully sets everything into its foundation, and then he fills the earth, right? And he starts with one man, Adam, and then gives him a partner. And he tells them to what? Multiply. And then God chooses Abraham to become the father of many nations. And God chooses to start, you know, with the nation of Israel who were captives of Egypt and uses Moses to free them. And as for me, when I was reading about the seven scrolls and then in the seventh seal, there's seven trumpets. And there's more terrifying judgments to come. When I was reading this, I couldn't help but think about uh, Exodus and the ten plagues. Why was God judging Egypt? Because they were oppressing God's people. And uh, God heard their cries. But it wasn't just about the judgment of Egypt, but through the plagues, God also revealed his power uh, to his people. And ultimately, uh, their salvation was a physical freedom. They were able to escape from Egypt. And do you remember the 10th plague, where the angel of death would kill the firstborn male of every family who didn't have the blood of an unblemished lamb on their door. And that evening, they had to eat the lamb. Right? The fingerprints of communion and, and the lamb to come all over. And just think about how terrifying it must have been in that moment in time. Right? Um, they, they, they had to cross the Red Sea where God held the waters back and while the Egyptian army is chasing after them to kill them all. But God destroys them. Scary stuff. But what happens in the wilderness to the Israelites? The people are quick to sin. They go right into idol worship and, and, and so, so many other things. And I always wondered, how is it possible that when you witness that, the ten plagues, God holding back the seas, God destroying the most powerful army at that time, the Egyptian army. How can the Israelites do that? And I think they lacked, they had fear of God, but they lacked the truth of God. With the scroll and the seals, God allows these riders and these horses to come and do destruction. What does that remind you in the Old Testament? It reminded me of Job, 
Remember when Satan's like, hey, this guy loves you because you've given him all these things. You take him away, he'll spit on you. And God says, do whatever you want as long as you don't kill him. And he allows chaos to take place in Job's life. And, and like just imagine all the torment that Job went through. And at the end of the day, he finally asks God, God, why did this happen? And God rebukes him. Do you not understand who you are compared to me? Were you there when I created all of this and put all these beasts into the oceans and done all of this? And Job finally understands. He, he, he got a glimpse of that truth, the power of God, who he is, his holiness. And his only response was, I'm just dust and ashes. I repent. So Job had, I think, fear and truth. I think that recipe is better, but we're not quite there yet. Everything that would happen when the time come, uh, when the time has come for Jesus to take the scroll and open the seal, I feel like that's going to be the final curtain. So do you see the movement here? So God started with one man, Abraham, to a small nation, and then he, he, he branches it out, and then he, cre- he creates them, Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, and then it goes out into the Gentiles. And here's Revelation. I think this is the final curtain. God is revealing what? And it's not a what. It's a who. Who is God revealing? From the ten plagues of Egypt, the saving was a group of people. To Job, the testing was to one person. But the Bible is pushing more and more not from just individuals in one people group, but the people from the ends of the earth. This is what Revelation is doing. This is the movement that we see throughout Scripture. Even when Jesus walked on earth, you know, um, so few were able to recognize him. And they passed him by. Some people chose not to follow him. Many actually chose not to follow him. But Jesus was what? Contained to like a pretty small region. But Revelation is about Jesus Christ in his full glory. Revealed to the entire creation that they will know that he is God and through all the judgment that is to come. They're going to know that he is God through his judgment. God is indeed scary. And he is scary because he's true to himself. But it is because he loves that balances out his wrath. And, um, and I want us to take a look at this. You know, friends, if you try to transform your life and, and love God more through just the vehicle of fear, and, and actually in our context, we don't really, I don't know how much of us really fear God, but in our area, I feel like we're, we're about finding more truth. So we like to study. We like to go into doctrines and study the Bible, and what does that mean? What does that parable mean? I want to ask, how did that go? In your living relationship with Christ, how did that approach work for you? I'll be the first one to say, not too great, or not even close to as great as I thought it would be. But we see that it was a blood from the unblemished lamb 
that the, Egypt, uh, that the Israelites used in Egypt that would save them from that night, that the, that, the, that the angel of death would pass over them. But it is the blood of the Lamb of God that would save us from all of eternity. And that's what Revelation is showing. That is what Revelation is about. And how great is this? Let's look at the heaven's response. Just look at it, Revelation 5. Look, it says, Jesus, you know, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne, and he had taken it. And these four creatures with eyes all over and six wings, and the 24 elders, what do they do? They bow down. They, fell, they fall down before the Lamb, each one with a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people, and they sang a new song. And these creatures and these elders, what do they sing? You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seal because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You had made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on earth. And there's this worship at that throne. And as this is happening, what happens next? Look in the next verse, 11. Then I look and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and they started worshiping. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. But it didn't stop there either. And then look at verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, all of them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The response of the Lamb who shed his blood is that this incredible image of this heavenly throne, every creature, every elder, every angel, everything and everyone is worshiping. It must be a pretty big deal. And while all four creatures, you know, as, as they're doing this, here is the question. So that's how they're worshiping. And the question for us is, how do I worship? So the way that they worship is they all fall down and they cry out and they sing, holy, holy are you, Lord, the lamb that was slain. And we are at our present time. The question is, how do I worship? Because that's what it's about. When was the last time I threw down my crowns and fell face down and worshiped Jesus? I'll tell you, it's been a while. I think the last time I worshipped falling down, face down, and crying out to God, I think I was in high school. And I'm not that old, but to me it feels like that's a long time ago. Why has my worship hit that climax in that high school retreat, and instead of building, it just kind of, I don't know. And I had to wrestle with that. But do you, know what the, do you know what the irony of all of this is? 
So here are these beasts and these elders and these angels. They're all worshiping all the creatures of the earth and the sea. They're not loved by God and Jesus the way that you and I are loved. Yet look at how they worship. Did you get that? Look at how they worship, yet they are not loved the same way that you and I are loved. They, these creatures, these amazing creatures with power, these 10,000s upon 10,000 angels, they are not sons and daughters of God. They are his servants. And they are not the bride of Jesus. We are. But how do we worship? How do I worship? This picture of all creation worshiping Jesus the way that they are, they're doing this because he is completely and beyond our fathom and he's worthy of it all. Whatever that means, he's worthy of it all. The question is, do you get that? Do you care? Do you even wrestle with it? It's hard. This lamb who is worthy of it all. Church, listen. This lamb that is worthy of it all loves you. And that gave me goosebumps. And I paused in my study of my sermon in that moment. He loves you. The one who is worthy to judge and mighty to save. The one who is worthy to open the scroll and the seals. He loves you. Not because of what you or I have done. But because he chose to love you. To love me. And he does this even though we don't worship well. Well, I'll speak for myself. I don't worship well. And I think the ingredient is the fear, the truth, and the love. It has to all come together. And I want to invite the praise team, and I'm going to close with this. I want to do one more thing. I want us to try to walk in kind of John's shoes here. Just, just imagine your apostle John, one of his original disciples, you literally walked with Jesus. You know him. Okay? He followed him, he learned from him, he ate with him, he saw the many miracles that Jesus did, he himself performed miracles. <clears throat> John was so loved by Jesus and he loved him. And he watched his rabbi die on the cross. And he witnessed Jesus' resurrection. And he witnessed Jesus' ascension into heaven. And he continued to do ministry while taking care of Jesus' mother, his, his earthly mother. This is John. Everything John witnessed about Jesus was incredible, was it not? It's absolutely incredible. Then Jesus saw, I'm sorry, John saw the revelation of Jesus Christ in the heavens. And even in his best efforts, in his best effort to describe what he saw, he tried to describe the indescribable, the beauty of Jesus in his glory. This is coming from a man who walked, ate, lived with Jesus. 
I think this is what the Christian life is about. But I think what the Christian life has become for many of us is that it was about that major moment and we realized that we were sinners and we needed a savior and then we get kind of plugged into a, a good religious routine. Now, I'm not saying that's bad. It's good to go to church. It's good to praise. It's good to listen to the sermon. But that's what the Christian life has become for many of us. And we kind of get stuck there. But I've never seen something even as beautiful as love grow and become better without intentionality and being left alone. The Bible actually says the heart becomes lukewarm or even cold. I think the Christian life is about experiencing the fears, the truths, and the love of Jesus more and more throughout the seasons of our lives intentionally. It's seeing Him more beautiful throughout our lives. How much more is Jesus beautiful today than He was last year? Five years ago, 10 years ago. And maybe for some of you, you're like, absolutely. He is so far more beautiful he is to me today. But many of us are like, uh. I mean, when I picture Jesus, I see that man, that humble man on the cross for me, and I'm thankful. But church, he's so much more than that. Read Revelations with me. It's, he's so much more than that. What is your image of Christ? perhaps too many Christians are living on a past moment rather than with Jesus having a real present relationship with him. Once again, I ask you, church, how do you worship? And what does the heart of your worship reveal honestly about how you view Jesus Christ? When was the last time you fell down and cast down your crowns. John's vision in Revelations 5, 6, he says, Then I saw the Lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by these four living creatures and the elders, and the Lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. And John continues. But he says, When he saw the Lamb, it was as if it was just slain. Church, did you grasp that for us we feel like oh yeah Jesus died for us a long time ago it's in in the past when God sees Jesus it's as if he was just slain and the way that all the creatures and elders are worshiping it's powerful is that the image that you get In God's sight, Jesus' sacrifice is fresh in this future. I don't know how long into the future this is, but whenever that time is, it's just as fresh then as the moment it happened 2,000 years ago. In Exodus, God saved the Israelites from Egypt. When we read Revelation, the judgment is scary. But church, I want to remind you this. As you read the scariness of Revelation... The salvation becomes more magnified and more beautiful based on what you were saved from. 
The Israelites, when they were saved from Egypt, was scary and it was a great salvation. So they had these feasts and remembrance and Passover to remember that great saving. But the saving that God is revealing in Revelation is salvation from what? It wasn't some army or some powerful nation, but the saving is from God's righteous judgment, His wrath. And no one can escape and flee from that. That's scary. But from that place, just sit there for a moment, that's what He saved you from. The wrath of His righteous judgment. And that's what made Jesus worthy of it all. Because that saving came from the shedding of His own blood as he washes our robe so that it may be white like his. Doesn't Revelation read different when we sit in the chaos and the judgment of God to know that only Christ can save us? And he did. And he sure did. And just look at Genesis to Exodus. Uh, I'm sorry, Genesis to Revelation. It does a full circle, right? God, God creates Right? Uh, he creates this paradise. He starts with one man, right, Adam, and, 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 and they're in communion with God. And then there's the sin and the fall, and everything gets broken. And look where Revelation ends. God restores the paradise, and there's still one man, but it's Jesus Christ. And in his works, we get to be with him for all eternity. So now when people ask you what you think about Revelation, don't just say doom and gloom, but see the beauty and the wonderfulness of Jesus Christ and the great, mighty, saving works of his hands that he was so worthy to open the scroll and open the seals, though those are terrifying things. But that's what he saved us from. After I pray, we're going to sing this response song. And, uh, and I made a special request to Christy because I knew she was leading. I said, can you play the song, Is He Worthy? Because it actually, it's a song written from Revelations 5. And it's kind of a, it's not an easy song. It's, a new, it's going to be a new song for many of us. But um, I'll tell you this. There's not many moments when I sing a praise song that I get really caught up and emotional. I think a big reason is my own bad singing distracts me. But I remember one song was Hosanna. That bridge, break my heart for what breaks yours. That bridge, I remember when I first heard that, and actually the person who introduced me to that song was Pastor Moses uh, when he was a high school pastor in Arcola. He was the one that introduced me to the song. So that was one of the songs. The other song was this song, Is He Worthy? And I remember at the conference, when I heard the song, I, I, just, I just froze. And I just got lost in the words, in the truth, in the power, in the fear, and in Jesus Christ, who is worthy of it all. And I want to invite all of us to grasp this incredible gift, this incredible Savior that is for you. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you. We're always trying to save ourselves and save ourselves from our situations. 
And Lord, we forget the ultimate salvation that took place. And our Christian lives reflects that we're thankful, but we are quickly forgetting our first love. Just like one of the seven churches that forgot the first love, we became lukewarm. We don't want to, but it's visible and it's shown in the way that we worship. For some of us right now, it's very difficult to even raise our voice and sing praises to you, let alone fall down on our face and on our knees. But Lord, we're praying right now that it's not going to come from our own effort and physical action of us getting down on our knees and and prostrating ourselves and, and, and singing these songs to you. But Lord, we're asking, Lord, you touch our hearts with the blood that cleanses our hearts and that cleansed our sins. That would be the only response as it's evident throughout the heavenly kingdom that we read. These creatures and angels You didn't die for them, but even they respond to what you did for us in such ways. Lord, humble us, forgive us, and may we come to you face down, laying down our crowns and singing, worthy, worthy is the one who can open the scroll and the seals. We thank you that it was you, because it it could have only been you who could have done this. We thank you, Lord. Receive our praise. Receive our hearts. May it be for your glory today and forevermore. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.